Welcome to Radio Read-Along, a podcast for the whole family, featuring dramatic word-for-word readings of classic stories for all ages. In today's episode, Adam Andrews reads chapters 55 and 56 of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. You can follow along in your own copy of the story, or sit back, relax, and let your mind's eye do the work. Previously in Great Expectations With the help of his friends, Pip narrowly escapes Orlick's murderous plot for revenge. Provis, however, is not so lucky. He's captured by customs officers before he can board ship for Europe, but not before disposing of his archenemy, Compeyson. Now known as Magwitch, he lies in prison awaiting trial, at which he will most surely be sentenced to death. Now, let's join the story in progress. Chapter 55 He was taken to the police court next day, and would have been immediately committed for trial, but that it was necessary to send down for an old officer of the prison ship, from which he had once escaped, to speak to his identity. Nobody doubted it, but Compeyson, who had meant to depose to it, was tumbling on the tides dead, and it happened that there was not at that time any prison officer in London who could give the required evidence. I had gone direct to Mr. Jaggers at his private house on my arrival overnight to retain his assistance, and Mr. Jaggers, on the prisoner's behalf, would admit nothing. It was the sole resource, for he told me that the case must be over in five minutes when the witness was there, and that no power on earth could prevent its going against us. I imparted to Mr. Jaggers my design of keeping him in ignorance of the fate of his wealth. Mr. Jaggers was querulous and angry with me for having let it slip through my fingers, and said we must memorialize it by and by, and try at all events for some of it. But he did not conceal from me that although there might be many cases in which the forfeiture would not be exacted, there were no circumstances in this case to make it one of them. I understood that very well. I was not related to the outlaw or connected with him by any recognizable tie. He had put his hand to no writing or settlement in my favor before his apprehension, and to do so now would be idle. I had no claim, and I finally resolved, and ever afterwards abided by the resolution, that my heart should never be sickened with the hopeless task of attempting to establish one. There appeared to be reason for supposing that the drowned informer had hoped for a reward out of this forfeiture, and had obtained some accurate knowledge of Magwitch's affairs. When his body was found many miles from the scene of his death, and so horribly disfigured that he was only recognizable by the contents of his pockets, notes were still legible, folded in a case he carried. Among these were the name of a banking house in New South Wales, where a sum of money was, and the designation of certain lands of considerable value. Both these heads of information were in a list that Magwitch, while in prison, gave to Mr. Jaggers, of the possessions he supposed I should inherit. His ignorance, poor fellow, at last served him. He never mistrusted but that my inheritance was quite safe with Mr. Jaggers' aid. After three days' delay, during which the Crown prosecution stood over for the production of the witness from the prison ship, the witness came and completed the easy case. 
he was committed to take his trial at the next sessions, which would come on in a month. It was at this dark time of my life that Herbert returned home one evening, a good deal cast down, and said, My dear Handel, I fear I shall soon have to leave you. His partner having prepared me for that, I was less surprised than he thought. We shall lose a fine opportunity if I put off going to Cairo, and I am very much afraid I must go, Handel, when you most need me. Herbert, I shall always need you, because I shall always love you, but my need is no greater now than at another time. You will be so lonely. I have not leisure to think of that, said I. You know that I am always with him to the full extent of the time allowed, and that I should be with him all day long if I could. And when I come away from him, you know that my thoughts are with him. The dreadful condition to which he was brought was so appalling to both of us that we could not refer to it in plainer words. "'My dear fellow,' said Herbert, "'let the near prospect of our separation, for it is very near, be my justification for troubling you about yourself.' Have you thought of your future? No, for I have been afraid to think of any future. But yours cannot be dismissed. Indeed, my dear Handel, it must not be dismissed. I wish you would enter on it now, as far as a few friendly words go, with me. I will, said I. In this branch house of ours, Handel, we must have a... I saw that his delicacy was avoiding the right word, so I said, A clerk. A clerk and I hope it is not at all unlikely that he may expand, as a clerk of your acquaintance has expanded, into a partner. Now, Handel, in short, my dear boy, will you come to me? There was something charmingly cordial and engaging in the manner in which, after saying, Now, Handel, as if it were the grave beginning of a portentous business exordium, he had suddenly given up that tone, stretched out his honest hand, and spoken like a schoolboy. "'Clara and I have talked about it again and again,' Herbert pursued, "'and the dear little thing begged me only this evening, with tears in her eyes, "'to say to you that if you will live with us when we come together, "'she will do her best to make you happy, "'and to convince her husband's friend that he is her friend too. "'We should get on so well, Handel.' "'I thanked her heartily, and I thanked him heartily, "'but said I could not yet make sure of joining him as he so kindly offered.' Firstly, my mind was too preoccupied to be able to take in the subject clearly. Secondly, yes, secondly, there was a vague something lingering in my thoughts that will come out very near the end of this slight narrative. But if you thought, Herbert, that you could, without doing any injury to your business, leave the question open for a little while. For any while, cried Herbert, six months, a year. Not so long as that, said I. Two or three months at most. Herbert was highly delighted when we shook hands on this arrangement, and said he could now take courage to tell me that he believed he must go away at the end of the week. And Clara, said I, the dear little thing, returned Herbert, holds dutifully to her father as long as he lasts, but he won't last long. Mrs. Wimple confides to me that he is certainly going. Not to say an unfeeling thing, said I. He cannot do better than go. I'm afraid that must be admitted, said Herbert, and then I shall come back for the dear little thing, and the dear little thing and I will walk quietly into the nearest church. Remember, 
"'The blessed darling comes of no family, my dear Handel, "'and never looked into the red book, "'and hasn't a notion about her grandpapa. "'What a fortune for the son of my mother!' "'On the Saturday in that same week, "'I took my leave of Herbert, "'full of bright hope, but sad and sorry to leave me, "'as he sat on one of the seaport mail coaches. "'I went into a coffee-house to write a little note to Clara, "'telling her he had gone off, "'sending his love to her over and over again.' and then went to my lonely home, if it deserved the name, for it was now no home to me, and I had no home anywhere. On the stairs I encountered Wemmick, who was coming down after an unsuccessful application of his knuckles to my door. I had not seen him alone since the disastrous issue of the attempted flight, and he had come in his private and personal capacity to say a few words of explanation in reference to that failure. The late Compeyson, said Wemmick, had by little and little got at the bottom of half of the regular business now transacted, and it was from the talk of some of his people in trouble, some of his people being always in trouble, that I heard what I did. I kept my ears open, seeming to have them shut, until I heard that he was absent, and I thought that would be the best time for making the attempt. I can only suppose now that it was a part of his policy, as a very clever man, habitually to deceive his own instruments. You don't blame me, I hope, Mr. Pip. I am sure I tried to serve you with all my heart. I am as sure of that, Wemmick, as you can be, and I thank you most earnestly for all your interest and friendship. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a bad job, said Wemmick, scratching his head, and I assure you I haven't been so cut up for a long time. What I look at is the sacrifice of so much portable property, dear me. What I think of Wemmick is the poor owner of the property. Yes, to be sure, said Wemmick. Of course, there can be no objection to your being sorry for him, and I'd put down a five-pound note myself to get him out of it. But what I look at is this. The late Compeyson, having been beforehand with him in intelligence of his return, and being so determined to bring him to book, I do not think he could have been saved, whereas the portable property certainly could have been saved. That's the difference between property and the owner, don't you see? I invited Wemmick to come upstairs and refresh himself with a glass of grog before walking to Walworth. He accepted the invitation. While he was drinking his moderate allowance, he said, with nothing to lead up to it, and after having appeared rather fidgety, What do you think of my meaning to take a holiday on Monday, Mr. Pip? Why, I suppose you've not done such a thing these twelve months. These twelve years, more likely, said Wemmick. Yes, I'm going to take a holiday. More than that, I'm going to take a walk. More than that, I'm going to ask you to take a walk with me. I was about to excuse myself as being but a bad companion just then, when Wemmick anticipated me. I know your engagements, said he, and I know you are out of sorts, Mr. Pip, but if you could oblige me, I should take it as a kindness. It ain't a long walk, and it's an early one. Say it might occupy you, including breakfast on the walk, from eight to twelve. Couldn't you stretch a point and manage it? He had done so much for me at various times that this was very little to do for him. I said I could manage it, would manage it, and he was so very much pleased by my acquiescence that I was pleased too. At his particular request, I appointed to call for him at the castle at half-past eight on Monday morning, and so we parted for the time. 
Punctual to my appointment, I rang at the castle gate on the Monday morning and was received by Wemmick himself, who struck me as looking tighter than usual and having a sleeker hat on. Within, there were two glasses of rum and milk prepared and two biscuits. The aged must have been stirring with the lark, for glancing into the perspective of his bedroom, I observed that his bed was empty. When we had fortified ourselves with the rum and milk and biscuits, and were going out for the walk with that training preparation on us, I was considerably surprised to see Wemmick take up a fishing rod and put it over his shoulder. But we're not going fishing, said I. No, returned Wemmick, but I like to walk with one. I thought this odd. However, I said nothing, and we set off. We went towards Camberwell Green, and when we were thereabouts, Wemmick said suddenly, Hello, here's a church. There was nothing very surprising in that, but again, I was rather surprised when he said, as if he were animated by a brilliant idea, Let's go in. We went in. Wemmick leaving his fishing rod in the porch, and looked all round. In the meantime, Wemmick was diving into his coat pockets and getting something out of paper there. Hello, said he, here's a couple pair of gloves. Let's put them on. As the gloves were white kid gloves, and as the post office was widened to its utmost extent, I now began to have my strong suspicions. They were strengthened into certainty when I beheld the aged enter at a side door, escorting a lady. Hello, said Wemmick. Here's Miss Skiffins. Let's have a wedding. That discreet damsel was attired as usual, except that she was now engaged in substituting for her green kid gloves a pair of white. The aged was likewise occupied in preparing a similar sacrifice for the altar of Hymen. The old gentleman, however, experienced so much difficulty in getting his gloves on that Wemmick found it necessary to put him with his back against a pillar and then to get behind the pillar himself and pull away at them, while I, for my part, held the old gentleman round the waist that he might present an equal and safe resistance. By dint of this ingenious scheme, his gloves were got on to perfection. The clerk and clergyman then appearing, we were ranged in order at those fatal rails. True to his notion of seeming to do it all without preparation, I heard Wemmick say to himself as he took something out of his waistcoat pocket before the service began, Hello, here's a ring. I acted in the capacity of backer or best man to the bridegroom, while a little limp pew opener in a soft bonnet like a baby's made a feint of being the bosom friend of Miss Skiffins. The responsibility of giving the lady away devolved upon the aged, which led to the clergyman's being unintentionally scandalized, and it happened thus. When he said, Who giveth this woman to be married to this man? The old gentleman, not in the least knowing what point of the ceremony we had arrived at, stood most amiably beaming at the Ten Commandments. Upon which the clergyman said again, Who giveth this woman to be married to this man? The old gentleman being still in a state of most estimable unconsciousness, the bridegroom cried out in his accustomed voice, Now, aged P, you know, who giveth? To which the aged replied with great briskness, before saying that he gave, All right, John, all right, my boy. And the clergyman came to so gloomy a pause upon it that I had doubts for the moment whether we should get completely married that day. It was completely done, however, and when we were going out of the church, 
Wemmick took the cover off the font and put his white gloves in it and put the cover on again. Mrs. Wemmick, more heedful of the future, put her white gloves in her pocket and assumed her green. Now, Mr. Pip, said Wemmick, triumphantly shouldering the fishing rod as we came out, let me ask you whether anybody would suppose this to be a wedding party. Breakfast had been ordered at a pleasant little tavern a mile or so away upon the rising ground beyond the green, and there was a bagatelle board in the room in case we should desire to unbend our minds after the solemnity. It was pleasant to observe that Mrs. Wemmick no longer unwound Wemmick's arm when it adapted itself to her figure, but sat in a high-backed chair against the wall, like a violoncello in its case, and submitted to be embraced as that melodious instrument might have done. We had an excellent breakfast, and when anyone declined anything on table, Wemmick said, Provided by contract, you know, don't be afraid of it. I drank to the new couple, drank to the aged, drank to the castle, saluted the bride at parting, and made myself as agreeable as I could. Wemmick came down to the door with me, and I again shook hands with him and wished him joy. Thanky, said Wemmick, rubbing his hands. She's such a manager of fowls, you have no idea. You shall have some eggs and judge for yourself. I say, Mr. Pip, calling me back and speaking low, this is an altogether Walworth sentiment, please. I understand. Not to be mentioned in Little Britain, said I. Wemmick nodded. After what you let out the other day, Mr. Jaggers may as well not know of it. He might think my brain was softening, or something of the kind. Chapter 56 He lay in prison very ill during the whole interval between his committal for trial and the coming round of the sessions. He had broken two ribs, they'd wounded one of his lungs, and he breathed with great pain and difficulty, which increased daily. It was a consequence of his hurt that he spoke so low as to be scarcely audible. Therefore he spoke very little. But he was ever ready to listen to me, and it became the first duty of my life to say to him and read to him what I knew he ought to hear. Being far too ill to remain in the common prison, he was removed after the first day or so into the infirmary. This gave me opportunities of being with him that I could not otherwise have had and but for his illness he would have been put in irons, for he was regarded as a determined prison-breaker, and I know not what else. Although I saw him every day, it was for only a short time. Hence the regularly recurring spaces of our separation were long enough to record on his face any slight changes that occurred in his physical state. I do not recollect that I once saw any change in it for the better." He wasted and became slowly weaker and worse day by day from the day when the prison door closed upon him. The kind of submission or resignation that he showed was that of a man who was tired out. I sometimes derived an impression from his manner or from a whispered word or two which escaped him that he pondered over the question whether he might have been a better man under better circumstances. But he never justified himself by a hint tending that way or tried to bend the past out of its eternal shape. It happened on two or three occasions in my presence that his desperate reputation was alluded to by one or other of the people in attendance on him. A smile crossed his face then, 
and he turned his eyes on me with a trustful look, as if he were confident that I had seen some small redeeming touch in him, even so long ago as when I was a little child. As to all the rest, he was humble and contrite, and I never knew him complain. When the sessions came round, Mr. Jaggers caused an application to be made for the postponement of his trial until the following sessions. It was obviously made with the assurance that he could not live so long, and was refused. The trial came on at once, and when he was put to the bar, he was seated in a chair. No objection was made to my getting close to the dock on the outside of it, and holding the hand that he stretched forth to me. The trial was very short and very clear. Such things as could be said for him were said, how he had taken to industrious habits, and had thriven lawfully and reputably. But nothing could unsay the fact that he had returned, and was there in the presence of the judge and jury. It was impossible to try him for that and do otherwise than find him guilty. At that time it was the custom, as I learned from my terrible experience of that session's, to devote a concluding day to the passing of sentences, and to make a finishing effect with the sentence of death. But for the indelible picture that my remembrance now holds before me, I could scarcely believe, even as I write these words, that I saw two and thirty men and women put before the judge to receive that sentence together. Foremost among the two and thirty was he, seated that he might get breath enough to keep life in him. The whole scene starts out again in the vivid colors of the moment, down to the drops of April rain on the windows of the court, glittering in the rays of April's sun. Penned in the dock, as I again stood outside it at the corner with his hand in mine, were the two and thirty men and women, some defiant, some stricken with terror, some sobbing and weeping, some covering their faces, some staring gloomily about. There had been shrieks from among the women convicts, but they had been stilled, and a hush had succeeded. The sheriffs, with their great chains and nosegays, other civic gewgaws and monsters, criers, ushers, and a great gallery full of people, a large theatrical audience, looked on as the two-and-thirty and the judge were solemnly confronted. Then the judge addressed them. Among the wretched creatures before him, whom he must single out for special address, was one who, almost from his infancy, had been an offender against the laws, who, after repeated imprisonments and punishments, had been at length sentenced to exile for a term of years, and who, under circumstances of great violence and daring, had made his escape and been re-sentenced to exile for life. That miserable man would seem for a time to have become convinced of his errors, when far removed from the scenes of his old offenses, and to have lived a peaceable and honest life. But in a fatal moment, yielding to those propensities and passions, the indulgence of which had so long rendered him a scourge to society, he had quitted his haven of rest and repentance, and had come back to the country where he was proscribed. Being here presently denounced, he had for a time succeeded in evading the officers of justice, But being at length seized while in the act of flight, he had resisted them, and had, he best knew whether by express design or in the blindness of his hardihood, caused the death of his denouncer, to whom his whole career was known.
the appointed punishment for his return to the land that had cast him out, being death, and his case being this aggravated case, he must prepare himself to die. The sun was striking in at the great windows of the court, through the glittering drops of rain upon the glass, and it made a broad shaft of light between the two and thirty and the judge, linking both together, and perhaps reminding some among the audience how both were passing on with absolute equality to the greater judgment that knoweth all things and cannot err. Rising for a moment, a distinct speck of face in this way of light, the prisoner said, My lord, I have received my sentence of death from the Almighty, but I bow to yours, and sat down again. There was some hushing, and the judge went on with what he had to say to the rest. Then they were all formally doomed, and some of them were supported out, and some of them sauntered out with a haggard look of bravery, and a few nodded to the gallery, and two or three shook hands, and others went out chewing the fragments of herb they had taken from the sweet herbs lying about. He went last of all, because of having to be helped from his chair, and to go very slowly, and he held my hand while all the others were removed, and while the audience got up, putting their dresses right as they might at church or elsewhere, and pointed down at this criminal or at that, and most of all at him and me. I earnestly hoped and prayed that he might die before the recorder's report was made. But in the dread of his lingering on, I began that night to write out a petition to the Home Secretary of State, setting forth my knowledge of him, and how it was that he had come back for my sake. I wrote it as fervently and pathetically as I could, and when I had finished it and sent it in, I wrote out other petitions to such men in authority as I hoped were the most merciful, and drew up one to the crown itself. For several days and nights after he was sentenced, I took no rest except when I fell asleep in my chair, but was wholly absorbed in these appeals. And after I had sent them in, I could not keep away from the places where they were, but felt as if they were more hopeful and less desperate when I was near them. In this unreasonable restlessness and pain of mind, I would roam the streets of an evening, wandering by those offices and houses where I had left the petitions. To the present hour, the weary western streets of London, on a cold, dusty spring night, with their ranges of stern, shut-up mansions and their long rows of lamps, are melancholy to me from this association. The daily visits I could make him were shortened now, and he was more strictly kept. Seeing, or fancying, that I was suspected of an intention of carrying poison to him, I asked to be searched before I sat down at his bedside, and told the officer, who was always there, that I was willing to do anything that would assure him of the singleness of my designs. Nobody was hard with him, or with me. There was duty to be done, and it was done, but not harshly. The officer always gave me the assurance that he was worse, and some other sick prisoners in the room, and some other prisoners who attended on them as sick nurses, always joined in the same report. As the days went on, I noticed more and more that he would lie placidly looking at the white ceiling, with an absence of light in his face, until some word of mine brightened it for an instant, and then it would subside again. 
Sometimes he was almost or quite unable to speak. Then he would answer me with slight pressures on my hand, and I grew to understand his meaning very well. The number of days had risen to ten when I saw a greater change in him than I had seen yet. His eyes were turned towards the door and lighted up as I entered. Dear boy, he said as I sat down by his bed, I thought you was late, but I knowed you couldn't be that. It is just the time, said I. I waited for it at the gate. You always waits at the gate, don't you, dear boy? Yes, not to lose a moment of the time. Thank ye, dear boy. Thank ye. God bless you. You've never deserted me, dear boy. I pressed his hand in silence, for I could not forget that I had once meant to desert him. And what's best of all, he said, you've been more comfortable along o' me since I was under a dark cloud than when the sun shone. That's best of all. He lay on his back, breathing with great difficulty. Do what he would, and love me though he did. The light left his face ever and again, and a film came over the placid look at the white ceiling. Are you in much pain today? I don't complain of none, dear boy. You never do complain. He had spoken his last words. He smiled, and I understood his touch to mean that he wished to lift my hand and lay it on his breast. I laid it there and he smiled again and put both his hands upon it. The allotted time ran out while we were thus, but looking round I found the governor of the prison standing near me, and he whispered, You needn't go yet. I thanked him gratefully and asked, Might I speak to him if he can hear me? The governor stepped aside and beckoned the officer away. The change, though it was made without noise, drew back the film from the placid look at the white ceiling, and he looked most affectionately at me. Dear Magwitch, I must tell you now at last. You understand what I say? A gentle pressure on my hand. You had a child once, whom you loved and lost. A stronger pressure on my hand. She lived and found powerful friends. She is living now. She is a lady, and very beautiful, and I love her. With a last faint effort, which would have been powerless but for my yielding to it and assisting it, he raised my hand to his lips. Then he gently let it sink upon his breast again, with his own hands lying on it. The placid look at the white ceiling came back and passed away, and his head dropped quietly on his breast. Mindful then of what we had read together, I thought of the two men who went up into the temple to pray, and I knew there were no better words that I could say beside his bed than, O Lord, be merciful to him, a sinner. Radio Read-Along is a production of the Center for Lit podcast network, featuring weekly episodes from the world's best stories. Want to listen ahead? Find this entire novel inside the Pelican Society at www.pelicansociety.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.